A warm servus from Munich and welcome everyone to the Hightech Ventures podcast. Our mission at Hightech Ventures is to help turn science into a triple P dividend. After decades of focus on purely digital innovations, the wave of science-backed ventures is inevitably coming. And in order to tackle many of the world's most pressing challenges, these high-tech innovations are also highly needed. The Hightech Ventures podcast gives you the inside look at what it takes to create successful science-backed ventures. We truly want to understand the entire process from lab to IPO and hone in on the people involved, entrepreneurs, tech transfer specialists, scientists or investors, most of them working backstage relentlessly. We will talk to those getting their hands dirty, those who don't shy away from the complexity, but see the opportunity to create lasting impact based on the newest advances in science and technology. My name is Thorsten Lambertus and I'm pleased to be your host for this episode today with Jörg Sperling. Hello Jörg, welcome to the High Tech Ventures podcast. How are you today? Hi Thorsten, I am great. I'm awesome. I'm awesome. I'm not running on all cylinders yet because I just came back from the Himalayas. So um, I'd say I'm, I'm running, the half, half of the engine is running. <laughs> at least half of the engine. So and I observed your trip at least via LinkedIn. So tell us a little bit about uh, the Himalayas. Why, what was the trigger for going there and how was the overall experience? Was it your first time, by the way? Yeah, it was my first time. I always wanted to go there. I'm a, I'm a little bit of mountain addict. Um, and obviously the Himalayas was on the list. Actually, I wanted to do the Annapurna Trail was always on my list uh, because what I actually did, um, the Everest Trail is in usual times rather crowded and that is not my thing because for me going to the mountains also means uh, peace of mind, quiet. Um, but when I arrived in Kathmandu, I noticed that there are absolutely no tourists whatsoever. So I changed plans and I did the Everest Base Camp Trail, which was great. Um, so highest altitude I did was 5,800. It was an awesome, fantastic trip. I enjoyed it. So I'm recharged and now back to work. Awesome. So we should definitely focus on the core topic, but great that you're back and recharged to at least some extent. So Jörg, maybe for, for starting off, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Walk us through the major steps of your career because you have seen quite, uh, quite different ecosystems and you had uh, different positions over the last couple of, of years and decades. So I'd say I, I have a little bit unusual background for an VC an investor because um, I'm a I'm a geek by education. Studied electrical engineering in Aachen, Germany, and then I did my master's thesis in Israel on some funky semiconductor uh, materials. So I'm a I'm a high speed semiconductor and photonics guy. Um, But I, I realized rather quickly that uh, research is not the area where I wanted to end it up. Um, did some research later on in the US uh, in their labs um, and also on photonics. Um, but then I joined a rather large organization, Siemens. Um, back then they had a semiconductor division, uh, which brought me to the US. I joined there in, in sales. Um, and Siemens was my ticket to Silicon Valley, which I rather enjoyed. Um, so I was in semiconductor sales there for a while. Um, 
before I drifted into venture capital, um, the Siemens Semiconductor Division started the corporate uh, fund in, in 97, so rather early, and, and back then not many corporate VCs were around. Um, I also started a German Stammtisch in Silicon Valley. So I would say back then I was a key part of the German mafia in Silicon Valley. Um, I, I know a lot of familiar people there, Konstantin Gurek, one of the LinkedIn founders, Peter Thiel, uh, Andy Bechtolzheim, they all came to uh, my monthly get-together. Um, it was an interesting time, um, and that was my first um, interaction really with um, startups, uh, the venture capital industry. I did that for Siemens for some years, then I joined a U.S. venture capital firm called Richwood Capital, uh, did that for some years, um, then I returned back to Germany, and here in Germany, I drifted a little bit into um, the, the, if we stick with Star Wars, the dark force, the dark side, private equity. Um, but I always was an active business angel on the side. Um, I was also in parallel um, for many years a venture partner at Munich-based Target Partners. So I always stayed in the venture game a little bit. Um, um, while I was working in private equity. I'm independent now for some years and I wear a number of hats. Uh, one hat is as a private investor. I invest very, very early in, in startups. A lot of them come out of the uh, Munich universities, um, but I also have some where I have Stanford teams. I also have some Israeli teams where I'm invested. Altogether, it's close to 20 companies where I'm an investor now. Um, then I'm assisting back to semiconductors, a large U.S. corporate, Micron, with their venture activities. Uh, for them, I facilitate investment in Germany and, and Israel. Uh, and I still do a lot of private equity uh, consulting. I advise a number of private equity firms in regards to deal acquisition. So for me, it's a mix between private equity upper end and then super early stage as a private investor. This is how I stay involved. I, I, I did in the past a lot of mentoring and coaching um, the various programs here um, coming out of Udanematum where I participated. I, I stopped doing that because I, I now have a large portfolio of companies where I'm directly invested. So I rather do that than advising companies where I'm not a shareholder. So given this uh, various roles and experiences that you, that you had in the past, uh, I try to, to guide us through where to start first. And uh, maybe given also the, our audience, what do you think, what was for you the trigger to say, I'm not staying as a researcher because you're coming from Erwitteha University. This is quite a strong university in, in Europe, right? Being uh, to Israel and doing your research there, what was so appealing about the investment space that you said, well, I'm going to tra transition uh, to the space? Uh, I'd say, first of all, you just listen to yourself, to your personality. I mean, frankly, I must say, uh, when I look at my kids, they're all grown up now, adults, finished uh, studies, um, some are in between their studies. I'm amazed how many internships uh, students do today. Uh, um, I wasn't required to do that. I was required to do two internships uh, when I studied in Aachen, and this was rather practical, uh, practical work. But 
frankly, in regards to business, I knew very, very little. And I think that is a big difference um, how this is done today. Pretty much you graduate and you've already seen so many things through uh, internships. So, so I must say to some degree, I was clueless um, and I only learned on the job. For me, it was natural. You're an electrical engineer. What do you do? You do research. Okay. And then I did research and I said, in, in, in my case, semiconductors, you spending your time in a, in a, in a white bunny suit, in a windowless room with yellow light. This is not too exciting. Um, and if you know me as a person, I'm, I'm rather outgoing and I like to interact with people. I said, Oh my God, uh, what is this? Um, and then I looked around and talked to people, and, 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 and frankly, then I was lucky um, that back then at Siemens, I interviewed with somebody who detected the skill. Um, I would have never thought to apply for a sales job, uh, quite frankly. Um, um, but the person with whom I interviewed, he said, you'd, you'd be perfect for sales. I said, geez, if you think so, um, I, I, I give it a try. And um, I never regretted it, so I liked being in sales. And frankly, from sales to uh, investing VC is not a super big step because both roles require that you're good interacting with people, um, you have good social antennas. Um, so it is not a dramatic step. I think from a researcher to somebody that works in sales is a dramatic step, but from sales then to VC to VC investing is, is, is not a big, is not a big step. That makes a lot of sense. And, and given your energy, I would have guessed that you maybe would have stick with the Israeli ecosystem because I've been to Tel Aviv twice. And uh, whenever you walk alongside the beach, you see people running up and down, doing their workouts, doing their exercise. There's so much uh, energy in the ecosystem. Did that re resonate with you as well? Uh, and uh, looking at your experience from the US, from uh, Israel, but also Europe, uh, what excites you most and why are you back in Munich now? So why am I back in Munich? That is a good question. So I loved Silicon Valley. Um, I must say that was an awesome, fantastic time there. I have a lot of war stories, amazing stories. Uh, uh, unfortunately, I missed some, some big hits where I could have been a first round investor, but overall I was in a tornado there and it was fantastic. Um, I love the environment, but you do have a lot of noise. Uh, uh, there, it can also be quite distracting uh, at times. Uh, the constant noise, um, and everybody is hyper excited. Um, and I'd say when you come from a European background and heritage, which I can't deny, you're quite sensitive to this massive bombardment with constant bullshit uh, that you get there and you go, geez, give me a break, slow down a little bit. So I would say Silicon Valley is probably extreme Israel. Um, last time I was in Israel was unfortunately February last year due to COVID. But in normal times, I'm in Israel every month. Um, so yes, um, I, I, I live in Munich. Uh, but in normal times, every month, I'm three to five days in Israel. This has to do with my Micron assignment. And I, 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 I love it. Uh, as you said, there is a certain... Um, style that the Israelis have, uh, hate it or like it. Uh, I, I like it. Uh, it's very straightforward, actually resonates with sort of the German style.
style. If they love it, they mean it, they're honest. If they say this sucks, they tell it straight to the face, which to some degree is not too far away sort of from the German um, um, attitude. So I love that. I love the energy. And I also must say, I love the uh, I love the sunshine. Um, this is what it has in common with Silicon Valley. So I like Israel, but also very frankly, I mean, based on my last name, a lot of people assume that I am Jewish. I'm not. Um, um, but the reality is I speak some Hebrew. Um, I can drown you probably in 50 words, 10 sentences. Um, but but I, I am not part of the community. I know a lot of people, um, but as a, as a foreigner, it's difficult to blend in. I, I, I wouldn't say it's more difficult than to blend in, in Germany. Um, I, I think like in every other country, um, you are a foreigner or you're an insider. Uh, it's it's difficult to really completely blend in. I know a lot of people there. Um, I, I feel at home, um, um, I must say, um, but I will never, ever be able to do the super, super, super hot deals there. This will be done in the inner circle, and I'm just not part of the inner circle. So I like Munich. Um, to me, um, it has improved tremendously as far as depth of entrepreneurs goes as far as international setup goes. Um, as an expat, I think it's much easier to feel at home now in Munich. Um, I came back from the US, I think 14, 15 years ago. I think you had two, maybe three international schools to choose from. Now you have a much, much longer list. Um, when I came back and you would come to a German coffee shop, and the waiter tells you, sorry, I don't speak German, you would go crazy, outrageous. Uh, this could happen to you in Berlin, but not in Munich. Oh my God, uh, the waiter doesn't speak German, unthinkable. Um, and I'd say this now happens to you here, I don't want to say daily, but, but more often, and that's fine. When you walk around here, I live right in the university, a area here in Maxvorstadt, very international, international students, um, still not as international as, as say, uh, Zurich or Berlin, um, but I would say it's a nice place here. You see this by these massive expansions uh, that Amazon did, IBM did, Google did, is a long list. Um, uh, and this created some critical mass, whereas really as international expats, you feel at home here rather quickly. Um, and if you or your spouse doesn't speak German, you get along. Um, I would still recommend it to take some German lessons when you want to live here permanently, but you do not need it. And I would say that has really changed over the previous 10 years. And I think... Being in a city that is attractive to expats and international uh, entrepreneurs is a key ingredient for a working startup ecosystem. Pe people always say the money, the money, the money. Yes, uh, lack of capital is, is still is an issue. But I think the key thing is still to have an environment and ecosystem where as an entrepreneur, you think, well, this is a good place to start your business. Because uh, what I notice is that people are these days 
so flexible in regards to where do they start their business. I have I have Munich teams. They look at the map and they say, well, we start the business in the U.S. Uh, the Kite team, which came out of uh, university here, Munich here. Um, um, I'm, I'm an early investor there. They have phenomenal history, but they decided to go straight to the U.S. They now have an office in Munich with R&D activities here. Um, but you also have people going vice versa, where they say uh, Silicon Valley is so crazy now, um, housing cost is crazy, I cannot get people, so let's go to Munich. Um, so the entrepreneurs are getting much more flexible in regards to where do they start the business, um, and they look at all sorts of things. Um, where do they get the people? Um, where is a good ecosystem with first customers? Um, where is it fun to live? I mean, we're all human beings. Uh, uh, when I decided to go back to, to uh, Europe, my wife gave me a list of cities where she would consider living. It was a short list. Uh, Munich was on the list. Uh, but even 15 years ago, we looked at Barcelona. We looked at the Provence. We looked at London. We looked at Munich. Um, uh, and like we were quite flexible in regards to where do we go, a lot of people now are very flexible. Uh, and, and I think Munich is a great place to live. We uh, we never regretted it. Um, back then, for us, it boiled down to Zurich or Munich. Um, again, you see the mountain theme. I'm mountain-driven. Exactly. Uh, Mountain-wise, yeah. mountain probably Zurich would have been the better choice. Um, but as far as where we feel happy and, and where I have three children, uh, they all still or again live in Munich, um, which is uh, interesting um, uh, that, that they also think that this is a good place to live. So I never regretted that coming to me. I think it's a great ecosystem for startups. I think it has gained and improved. Um, tremendously. What I also like about Munich is the sector variety. It is not just cars, it's e-commerce, it's software, it's everything. So I think it's a great place. Okay, so uh, this podcast is also all about how we, do we get the latest technologies out of the research organization and into great startups. And you have quite some experience in early stage investment as well, and also with science-backed ventures. So what are your thoughts on that? And what distinguishes the good from the ugly, uh, let's put it that way, in the very early stage of such a startup? So I think successful technology spin-offs are very difficult. And, and this was part of my mission when I was at Siemens Ventures. Um, we had internal business plan competitions, uh, uh, the usual corporate, I don't want to call it nonsense, but it was part of the corporate venture program. Um, I cannot recall a single of these spin-offs being successful uh, because in many cases it's um, a product looking for a market. Um, great technology and then everybody is scratching their head, what do we do with it? And I think that's the wrong way around, uh, the right way around. So ideally these technology spin-offs are, are a, a, a pull rather than a push. So you have a you have a market-driven team and they say, hey, um, we want to start a business in this sector and, and we're looking for a, a product. And then they sniff around and they say, all right, let's take a look at what do we have. And they systematically shop at the universities or at research institutes and they say, well, this is what I need. And then they pull it out. Um, I think those are probably the success successful ones. 
rather than the ones where the researchers are all sitting there and they say, well, we have all this great technology and all these patterns, what do we do with it? Uh, the problem is um, it's probably the wrong question for the wrong people. Um, um, ideally, they should be sitting there and almost like uh, a, a marketplace a display. This is what we have. Uh, you entrepreneurs at the outside world uh, tell us what to do with it rather than they themselves scratch their head what to do with it. Uh, I think that's probably the best way to do it. Um, we had this problem at, at, at Siemens and I think also other research organizations have that where patents and patent ownership was a big, big deal. Uh, and this practically was already doomed for failure um, because as an investor and also as a founding team, you want full control over the IP, full ownership. Um, and this is always difficult to pull off uh, when it comes from research-driven organizations where they feel the IP is everything and they put a low value on sort of the entrepreneurial side um, and, and, and the entrepreneurs almost look at it the, the opposite. They say the business idea, customer access, the vision is key. Frankly, then getting this technically done, yes, is also important, um, but it's not is not key. And you have these two visions colliding, uh, which I think is a problem. Uh, the people that own the patents think this is everything, um, and the entrepreneurs, the founding teams, think, well, yeah, we need the technology, but it's really not everything. And you have you have a chasm that is very difficult to bridge. Um, that's what I see on a regular basis, I'm, 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 I'm unfortunately. So I, I'd say probably the best spin-offs are the ones where you take two, three great entrepreneurs, um, pair them with two, three great uh, researchers, and probably in order to avoid the hassle, you just leave all IP behind. You say, thank you very much. We start from scratch. Uh, you think those patents are worth X. Tell you what, keep them. Uh, and those are probably the best spin-offs based on my subjective experience. <laughs> of course, it's always subjective, but uh, you're also doing angel investments, obviously. So what, what, what else is your filter in this very, very early stage? Ah, jeez, uh, I'm, I'm now more than 50 years old. I've done 50, maybe more deals in over the years. Um, my conclusion is that in my young ages, um, I, I look way too much on, on the product and not enough uh, on the entrepreneurs. And, uh, with age and the more gray hair I'm getting, the more I really focus on the people. Uh, I, 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 I don't know. I give you, I give you some some examples, some that worked, some that didn't work. Um, uh, when when Peter Thiel was pitching PayPal to me, uh, the product sucked. It was a complete joke. Uh, um, so you could do a money transfer through a, through, you probably don't even know that product, a US robotics palm pilot through the infrared link, uh, which means I can only transfer money to you when we're sitting one meter apart. If I leave uh, the restaurant, I cannot transfer money to you. And he showed this thing to me <laughs> and I said, 
thank you very much. I'm, I'm really not interested. Uh, but the guy had so much vision. Uh, yes, in hindsight, you should have you should have backed it. Or another one is is, is LinkedIn. The first fifty thousand dollar round, uh, I, I could have invested. Because constantly, Durica is still a good friend of mine. Uh, one of the founders, he showed me the product, and it really sucked. The UI was a complete nightmare. Uh, there were 10 people on the system. I'm proud LinkedIn user number 14 ever. Wow, <laughs> uh, 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 Yeah, it didn't buy me anything. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, the first product version just sucked so badly, uh, I just couldn't see it. But again, Constantine and his teammates, uh, 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 true entrepreneurs, so much enthusiasm. Um, and, and I think I learned that lesson the hard way. And, and, and today I have some um, um, companies in my private portfolio that are doing extremely well, um, where frankly what they're doing today has nothing to do with the original business plan. It, it, it was just the management team uh, that, that uh, did amazing things. If I look at Kite again, uh, they started off with a business plan. The company was back then still called UMI. It was sort of in miles and more for the shared mobility industry and that business plan just didn't go anywhere and it was very clear to the team that this didn't go anywhere um, and then i remember one day they presented three options to the investors they said well plan a is not working here three other ideas and and we thought we were discussing slides and concepts, uh, what we learned is they had quietly launched actually three businesses in parallel. The products were ready and they were reporting to us the first user numbers. And then this Kite business plan came up uh, and, and we thought we were, we were looking at, but they said, no, no, well, this is live user data and this is not a mock-up. No, 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 the product is ready. So they put this together somehow overnight, very small team. And I think those are the things that impress me. Uh, and, and in early days, I would have looked at the product business plan and blah, blah, blah. Um, and, and, and these days, I really focus on, 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 on the people and the teams. And there's a very high correlation between gut feeling. Are these people going to rock it or not? Um, I still make mistakes. Um, sure. Where to the contrary, I fall in love with a great product. And I say, this is just amazing. And the team is sort of so-so, but the product is so cool. Um, and yeah, uh, the end result is if, if the team is so-so, the business is also performing so-so, uh, despite a great product and a great business idea. So I got much more relaxed in regards to the product, uh, as long as the team is great, I'll pull it off somehow. Beautiful insights. And so now let's double click on this. If this is your key insight, it's all about the people who are driving this venture. Yeah. What, what is all about these entrepreneurs? So tell, tell us about them. Uh, how does this ideal person look like? Um, I think to some degree, they are naive. You need a certain degree of of, of just being naive, not considering the consequences. Oh my God, if this venture fails, oh my God, if this goes wrong. Um, um, you need to be a little bit nuts, um, call it nuts, call it naive. I think that's important. I, I, I like all rounders, uh, people who have done 
lots of different things and they're not in their tunnel. They know adjacent areas. Yes, I'm a great coder, but I also know, say something about the industry that we're tackling or I've gained some other experience. Um, uh, what also helps tremendously is when the team has some sort of prior history uh, uh, together. That helps a lot. Uh, and uh, also the ability to really um, impress employees and customers. So this comes back then to the salesmanship, to the personality. Um, first present, I mean, let's be real. If you are at these startups at sea level, you're always to some degree in sales. You're selling your employees. You need them motivated and excited. Uh, you do the same for your customers. If you do crazy things, you also need to motivate other people to do crazy things. Um, uh, uh, they have the job offer from McKinsey, but they should join your startup. Face value, this is crazy. So you need to persuade them to do these crazy things. Uh, your customer can buy from, say, SAP or from you, the brand new software startup. This is crazy. So you need a personality that can persuade the customer to do crazy things. Um, so, yeah, I always try to engage in, in, in these personal conversations where they just are not only going through slide after slide, but I, I want to understand the, the person behind. Uh, how do they think? What sort of personalities are they? Um, almost a little bit uh, psychometric screening. Um, <laughs> what, what, what sort of person do we have here? Um, I, I think that's important. You don't want to have the crazy uh, ego man uh, that builds a kingdom. Um, well-rounded personality, fun, entertaining, someone that can motivate um, and a good blend. Um, ideally, I want three, four, five people, not only two people. Um, there's a little bit more quiet techie um, asking the difficult questions. Uh, then you have the, the, the CEO to me, very important, must be sales DNA. Um, that person has to attract capital, has to bring in employees. If that is a boring person, you have a problem. Um, then you have the super crazy marketing guy with brilliant ideas. Um, then you need a little bit more conservative CFO. So a good mix, I think, is what I'm looking for. So bottom line at the end of the day is the role of research organization in the future is just providing the right people, just educating engineers, people like you, who magically turn into people who want to become entrepreneurs. Is that right? I I think to some degree that's, that's, that is right. I think it's a good uh, skill set research, understanding this. How do you gather information? How do you collaborate? Um, how do you um, um, sort of out of a lot of data um, um, draw the right conclusions? Um, what sort of tools and technologies are available? Um, I think that is quite important. Um, so yeah, I think it's a good training ground. So I do not regret that I um, have chosen um, a, a engineering degree. Um, 
there were times where I said, what a waste of time. I should have done an MBA. But, but frankly, I think it's easier to turn an engineer into a commercially thinking business person uh, than the other way around. And, you know, there are days where I think, what a waste of time. But there are also days where I think, geez, that's quite helpful that I understand a little bit of what they're doing here. Um in a, in a high-tech world, it, it, it also gives you some credibility. Um, uh, you, you're not just the uh, a business number cruncher. You know, or at least people think you know, how a lot of this shit works. Um, um, so that also helps. Yeah, for me, it was the right was the right mix. Um, was the right mix. So, so I can still recommend people um, uh, go for an engineering degree, whether it's computer science, math, physics, or whatever, it is a very good foundation. Understood. So given, and you already touched upon various roles also for corporates, what, what is their contribution to the deep tech uh, startup ecosystem? Um, is it just providing money, early stage, proof of concepts? So where do you see like, this is where they are helpful? And this is maybe things corporates do, which is not that helpful. Boy, here I'm a little bit conflicted. So I worked for a corporate VC, and today one of my clients uh, is a corporate VC. Um, I think you have to triangulate. Um, I think where corporates can really be helpful is technology vetting. Um, uh, however, uh, with a big disclaimer, everyone in the organization thinks two years ahead, maybe three years ahead, but not five years ahead. So on a regular basis, uh, if the corporate tells you this is nonsense, this is rubbish, you need to take that with a grain of salt. It, it could be within the next two years, this is not going to see any sort of commercialization. Yep, that may be right, but in five years, it could go uh, gangbusters. I think um, a corporate partner adds a certain degree of credibility. Uh, they do have capital. Uh, if I look for my, at my client Micron, they have a little bit the Apple problem to a smaller degree, um, but they have one billion of free cash flow per month. And looking That's for really a cool. home, yeah. <laughs> looking for a home, you can buy stock back um, or what else do you do? Uh, so they certainly do have deep pockets, um, depending on to whom you're talking to. Um, they can open a lot of doors. If I take Micron, they're a strategic supplier to all the hyperscalers. They're a producer of memory products, whether it's Google, Amazon, you name it. Uh, Micron is a strategic supplier. And uh, yes, the little startups uh, get a meeting there and you can help and you can assist. I think as far as long-term strategy goes, uh, I would say they're the wrong audience. Uh, uh, and they can waste a lot of time so I would not bend over backwards to please them when it comes to proof of concepts or or whatever here's my product um, shrink wrap I'd be happy to make little customization here or there um, but that's about it because otherwise you can just waste a ton of time uh, with them they definitely move slower um, And I think for a startup, they can easily get lost in the maze uh, because these organizations are so big. I see this with Micron on a regular basis. 
you talk to a part of the organization and there is 50 other people to whom you should be talking, you never talk to, who are the real decision makers, is this just a research project, is it ever going to be implemented in the roadmap? Um, to a large degree, this is a black box uh, and very, very difficult. I've done in my sales days, I've done key account sales, so I sold to very large companies. Uh, IBM was a customer. Uh, Conti was a customer. Uh, Bosch was a customer. And, 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 and boy, the touch points you have there in these organizations, uh, it becomes a very complicated chess play before you really end up with an order and then the question is always yeah, what sort of order is that is that from a little research pocket are you really in serious production or what is it um so i would say for startups i would not engage too early uh, be careful with corporate investors uh, uh, my typically do this in syndicates with other corporates this is something where we feel quite comfortable at the right stage, not too early. Um, there we don't invest early, it's rather late stage. I think late stage is the right place to be um, because also what do you do with a large corporate when you're in the concept and testing phase? Forget it. Uh, you need to show them something um, that is already vetted. So I would say at later stage, this is fine. It can accelerate your go-to-market. It can help you to internationalize the business. Um, you can fill your cash coffers um, potentially a little bit easier, um, but at the, not at early stage. I would not waste time with them. Fully understood, and thank you for for that perspective as well. And so, so finally, what distinguishes the good from the bad VCs actually? So, from a founder's perspective, what do I need oh. to take into account? I think that's, uh, I, I'm always amazed how little due diligence the entrepreneurs do on the VCs. Uh, the VCs ask you hundreds of questions uh, and at the right point in time, it's perfectly fair to turn this around and say, hey, can we talk to some of your portfolio companies, how this is going? Um, I think what people need to understand is you have two types of VCs. One is where the partners work really as a team all together and you work with the firm, which means the firm is invested and you're dealing with everyone. This is the exception. Um, typically, you are dealing with the partner on the deal and maybe the associates. So firm partner A at firm X and partner B at firm X can be tremendous difference. So I think at the end of the day, you are picking people and not firms. Uh, and I think this is what a lot of people don't understand. Um, you have to pick the right person at the firm. Um, and this starts at day one. You need to approach the right person because typically you're stuck with the person that you uh, that you approach. Some exceptions, uh, some firms really work at two, as true partnerships. Um, but I've been working with a number of firms. In a number of firms, uh, that is probably the exception. You are picking people. You have to pick the right people. Um, and they do a lot of due diligence on you. 
um, and I always recommend to turn it around. So um, this is like personalities, the, the, the good or the bad, difficult to say, it has to be the right fit. Um, so I would say take a look at with what firms did they work in the past. Um, so you're interested in working with uh, Lisa at Venture Fund A, uh, take a look at what deals has Lisa done. And you also consider work with Peter at Venture Firm B, take a look at what deals has Peter has done. Try to find out a little bit what's his or her style, um, how are they? I think you need to find the right fit there. Um, you have the micromanagers, I've seen those um, where oh my God, what color of logo do we pick? And there's a mistake in column B12. Um, um, or you have the super, super big picture guys. They float up there, um, high, high up there. You need to pick what you need. Uh, also, you need to be realistic about what do you expect from a VC. They will help with guidance and directions. They will help with introductions. They will help in regards to capital transactions, fundraisings, M&A and exit. And, but you need to run your business. They will not help you running the business. Uh, if the business is not working and you're constantly asking for help, the outcome is not that they're going to fix it. The outcome is that they're going to fire you and find a replacement. So you need to be realistic about that. They're not going to be there on a daily basis for firefighting. You do that in rare exceptions. You really go in there as an investor hands-on fix things but this is very rare and it is the exception that's a um, very useful advice uh, th thank you very much uh, for that as well um i think this will help founders a lot that they also turn this game upside down and they also have the yeah, right you, you know i have i have cases where where i was sitting on the investor side and i was waiting for that moment when are they going to ask and they never ask they just trust you that you're a great guy you're an honest guy and you're going to help them okay fine um, but it's very fair to ask and turn this around Good. So your final question, and I hope there's still some energy left. So you've seen a lot of technology, you see a lot of ventures um, globally. What are the fields, the verticals, the technologies that excite you most and that you personally think will change for good the way how we live? Ha, that's a difficult question. So um, I'm a hardware guy. Um, I have not made a single private investment in a hardware company <laughs> because I know how difficult this is. All my investments are in B2B software. Um, I like this a lot um, because capital is quite efficient there. You can play around, trial and error works in the hardware world. Rarely do you have a lot of room for trial and error, in particular in the semiconductor world where I come from. This is so capital intensive. Um, uh, if, if you screw up and you say, oh, I have to redesign, boom, you lose half a year like that. It means you have a hole in your balance sheet, 20 million. Oh, my God, what do we do? Um, so most of 
not all my investments are in 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 in, in B two B software. Um, I do not have the expertise to sort of look at the glass uh, bowl and say this is where this is heading. I I just uh, let things flow at me and it's pattern recognition. I look for things that are a little bit unique and and different. Where I go, geez, this is this is different. Uh, this is not uh, I don't know. Uh, image recognition anomaly detection deal number 55 uh, is something different. This is what I'm looking for. Um, um, but I, I, I'm, I'm not giving here, these are George's top 10 new technologies. I'm constantly getting surprised. Wonderful. Uh, so, really, I enjoyed this conversation. Uh, thank you for all the stories and insight perspectives from from you. Um, I hope you enjoyed it as well. Uh, cool. And you, thank you very much for your time today. Uh, take care, and hopefully, we're able to, to talk soon again. Pleasure, Thorsten. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.